Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, everyone. Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. Before I get to the episode, I want to mention that in March, I'm hitting three years since I started podcasting full-time. And I want to do a Q&A episode, so I'll answer questions about Canadian history, about myself. Just email craig at canadaehx.com. A listener's note, the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. As the 19th century ended, a group of Russian immigrants fled, growing hostility in their homeland for a better life. Canada had opened its doors to these new immigrants and offered land in a place called the Northwest Territories. They were told it was good land and they could live life as they wanted. This would be a welcome change because in Russia, they were persecuted, jailed, and even attacked. In their new home, they hoped to live in peace. They were told they could live communally, be exempt from any military draft, and teach their children in their own schools. It all seemed perfect. But there's a reason the saying is, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That is because this group of Russian radical pacifists known as the Dukabors arrived in Canada with the hopes of a better life, only to find it to be far less welcoming than they were ever led to believe. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. In the late 19th century, Canada was looking for settlers on land that had been until recently the traditional territory of the indigenous peoples. The land had been ceded over in the numbered treaties of the 1870s, and indigenous people were pushed to reserve so that the settlers, towns, and railroads could occupy the land that they had lived on for thousands of years. This led to the Dominion Lands Act of 1872, which gave 160 acres of land to any male homesteader who could establish a working farm within three years of arrival in Canada. The cost for that land? 
$10, or about $250 today. The act brought thousands of settlers to Canada, especially once the Transcontinental Railway was completed in 1885. Settlement of the West was slow, but that changed in 1896 when Clifford Sifton took over as the Minister of the Interior. He set up an aggressive advertising campaign in the United States and Europe and had hundreds of agents promoting the Canadian West to potential new immigrants. The campaigns worked as immigration went from 25,000 people per year in the early 1890s to over 400,000 new Canadians by 1913. That record was not surpassed until 2022, when Canada welcomed 431,654 new permanent residents. And there was one group of immigrants, the Dukabors, that found the large tracts of land being offered by Canada to be the most appealing. During the 17th and 18th centuries, a new sect of Christianity emerged in the Russian Empire. Early Dukabors called themselves God's people. But the first use of the word Dukabor, meaning spirit wrestler, appeared around 1785 and was used to mock the sect as heretics fighting the Holy Spirit. But instead of pushing against that name, the sect adopted it because they saw themselves as fighting alongside the Holy Spirit. Led by preacher Danilo Filipov, they were against secular government, formal rituals, and Russian Orthodox priests. The Bible was replaced with orally transmitted psalms and hymns, which they referred to as the Living Book. They believed God dwelled in human beings, not the church. And pacifism became a core belief because for them, to kill another human was equal to killing a piece of God. All people were equal because God was in everyone. The Dukabors also believed in the benefits of communal living, where decisions were made collectively, and there were no religious symbols beyond the display of bread, salt, and water, which represented the elements that sustained life. Life was meant to be lived simply, through hard work, and led by the Holy Spirit. Due to their pacifist beliefs, they were oppressed by Imperial Russia and often isolated from the wider population. By 1826, Tsar Nicholas I issued a decree to force the Dukabors to assimilate into Russian culture through military conscription and ban their meetings and encourage conversions to the Russian Orthodox Church. The decree didn't work, and by 1886 there were 20,000 Dukabors in Russia. The Dukabors refused to pledge allegiance to the government and refused to fight in the name of the Tsar. This led to confrontations with the army and the government. On Easter Sunday, 1885, 11 Dukabor men, all of whom had been forced to serve in the army, laid down their weapons and refused to serve from that point on. Several other soldiers followed suit. As punishment, they endured beatings, whippings, and imprisonment, but their example inspired others. At midnight on June 29, 1895, 7,000 Dukabors gathered in the Caucasus region and burned their muskets to protest the forcible conscription methods of the Russian army. This became known as the burning of the arms, and some historians consider it to be the first pacifist protest in modern times, and to this day it is still celebrated by the Dukabors as Peace Day. Eventually Russia decided that the best way to deal with the sect was to let them simply leave the country. Initial attempts were for them to settle in Cyprus, but Canada emerged as an attractive destination when the government offered land, transportation, and help in settling what is now Saskatchewan. The Canadian government also passed Section 21 of the Dominion Military Act to exempt the Dukabors from military service. Minister of the Interior Clifford Sifton wanted the Dukabors in Canada because they fit his idea of a perfect settler, which he described as a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat born on the soil whose forebears have been farmers for 10 generations, with a stout wife and half a dozen children of good quality. 
For the Dukabors, a welcoming new country and their own land was an offer they simply couldn't pass up. At first it seemed as promised. The Dukabors had a great deal of help to get to Canada. The Quakers, who followed a similar belief that there was God in everyone, covered most of the costs of their passage. Celebrated Russian author Leo Tolstoy donated the royalties from his book Resurrection to help and erased over 30,000 rubles extra through wealthy friends. Today that amounts to about $430,000. Now you may be asking why the celebrated author was helping the Dukabors. Well, he greatly respected them, calling them a phenomenon of extraordinary importance. He believed in equality and nonviolence, so the Dukabor's core beliefs earned his respect, even if he wasn't a Dukabor himself. By the end of 1899, one-third of the Dukabors found in Russia at the time arrived in Canada. 7,500 immigrants arrived in cattle ships that were cleaned and fitted with bunks to handle the large number of passengers. And that voyage was a time of celebration, as 11 marriages took place during the voyage across the Atlantic. The Manitoba Morning Free Press wrote that upon their arrival at St. John, New Brunswick, thousands of people warmly greeted them at the wharf. It stated, They came into port singing hymns with heads bared. They received an enthusiastic welcome from the waiting crowds and responded thereto cordially, many even getting on their knees and touching the deck with their foreheads. The Free Press Prairie Farmer reported on February 2nd, 1899, the reception they received amply sufficed to remove any lingering suspicion that they might not, after all, have bettered their condition in fleeing from their settlements in southern Russia. Upon their settlement in Saskatchewan, the Dukabors found that the single-family homesteads under the Dominion Lands Act did not fit their communal living traditions. But thankfully, a hamlet clause existed within the Act, which allowed for homeowners to live in a hamlet within five kilometers of their land, rather than on the land itself. This allowed the Dukabors to establish a communal lifestyle like the Hutterites enjoy today. The Hutterites had come to Canada from the United States, buying land in Alberta in the 1940s. The Alberta government worried about the large amount of land that the Hutterites bought, and they introduced the Communal Properties Act, which restricted their ability to buy communal properties. This was eventually repealed in 1973, and today 34,000 Hutterites live in 350 colonies in Canada. In total, 773,000 acres in Saskatchewan were settled by the Dukabors, as the landscape somewhat reminded them of their home in Russia. The North Colony housed 2,400 Dukabors in 20 villages on 69,000 acres. The South Colony housed 3,500 Dukabors in 30 villages on 215,000 acres. The Good Spirit Lake Annex housed 1,000 Dukabors on 168,000 acres. These three colonies were located near Yorkton along the Manitoba border. Lastly, the Saskatchewan colony housed 1,500 Dukabors in 13 villages on 324,000 acres of land, located nearly 400 kilometers northwest between Prince Albert and Saskatoon. The settlers quickly discovered winters in Saskatchewan, though, were far harsher than they expected, and the climate was not suitable for growing some fruits and vegetables like they were accustomed to. Nonetheless, they persevered. In the first years in Canada, the Dukabors built log houses or dug into banks of creeks to create dugout homes. These dugout homes measured 436 square feet and housed a couple dozen people. Over a century later, the ruins of those dugout homes became a heritage site to commemorate the Dukabors' pioneer spirit. So after everything, the group that was once persecuted in Russia had found a home in Canada. But the good times didn't last. Although Canada opened its doors to the Dukabors, it didn't take long for mistrust to grow. 
Many in the Canadian West looked at their traditions of isolation, being vegetarians, and working the land without animals with suspicion. Those outside the Dukabor colonies began to question why they didn't enroll their children in government-run schools, or why they opposed private land ownership. And as the 20th century began, there were dark days ahead. The year 1902, which was three years from when they first arrived in Canada, proved to be a watershed year for the Dukabors in Canada. That's when Peter Verrigan arrived north of 49. In 1887, the Dukabor spiritual leader was arrested by Russian police and spent the next 15 years in custody. All the while, the Dukabors saw him as their spiritual leader. In 1896, Verrigan wrote directly to Tsar Nicholas's wife to ask permission for the Dukabors to be able to leave Russia. As they left Russia, he remained imprisoned. That is until 1902 when he was finally released and able to join the Dukabors in Saskatchewan, along with another 500 immigrants from Russia. At this point, the Dukabors were the largest single mass migration of a group in Canadian history. And the Dukabors rejoiced at the arrival of their leader, and even changed the name of their village, and I'll do my best to pronounce this properly, from Portrepevshi to Atradonie, which translates as the place of rejoicing. Little did they know what was to come. Upon his arrival, Peter Verrigan saw the Dukabor slowly assimilating into Canadian culture. He counseled against it and reiterated the need to set their animals free and pull the wagons and plows themselves. And he ushered them back to communalism, as several years in Canada saw them move towards private land ownership. He advocated for self-sufficiency, something that was becoming more difficult as the world was becoming smaller with each passing day, thanks to the railroad on which many of the men worked. In 1904, the Canadian Northern Railway line crossed through Dukabor land, and small towns began to pop up on the horizon. And while they were happy their leader was with them, the Dukabors were still dealing with a Canadian public and press that was turning against them. News stories referred to them as Sifton's pets, and newspapers such as the Ottawa Citizen reported that huge harems were operated on Dukabor land, further inflaming the Canadian public against the people they welcomed only five years earlier. Once Clifford Sifton, though, resigned as the Minister of the Interior in 1905, a new man took on the post, Frank Oliver. Frank Oliver believed Canada belonged to Anglo-Saxons, and only Anglo-Saxons. And Frank Oliver was also a major figure in Canadian politics. He had founded the Edmonton Bulletin, the first newspaper in the city, and was one of the first politicians to represent the region in Parliament. As soon as he became the Minister of the Interior in 1905, he set out to reshape the Canadian West demographics as he saw fit. He offered the Michelle First Nation $9 an acre for parcels of their land. When they agreed, he refused to pay them. When the Canadian government deemed the sale illegal, he kept the land and never returned it to the Michelle First Nation. Near Edmonton, he spent nearly a decade pushing the Cree off their reserve so the land could be sold to new settlers. With that accomplished, he then did the same thing to the Sharp Head First Nation in what is now central Alberta. As black immigrants began to arrive in the Canadian prairies to start new lives after fleeing Jim Crow policies in the United States, Oliver attempted to prevent them from entering Canada. This legislation, though, never passed, but only because an election was called. Then he set his sights on the Duke of Bors. Almost as soon as he took on the cabinet post, he began to rework the law and go back on the promises made by Sifton. The Dominion Lands Act was modified so that land had to be registered in the name of individual owners. Previously, the Dukabors had their land registered in the name of the community. 
The Canadian government now would not allow this, and 258,000 acres had to be returned as a result. This caused a great deal of anger, and the Duke of Boris felt they were betrayed after working the land for almost a decade. With their way of life in Saskatchewan being threatened, Berrigan and 6,000 Dukabors left the province in 1907 and settled in British Columbia. There they set up 80 communal villages primarily in the Kootenai region and the southeast portion of the province. Several thousand remained in Saskatchewan, where they continued to own property. Berrigan hoped that purchasing large tracts of land in southeastern British Columbia and moving there would remove the corrupting influence of non-Dukabors that they were experiencing in Saskatchewan. As well, the milder climate of British Columbia was attractive, as the Dukaboras could plant orchards on their property. Unfortunately, even though the terrain was isolated, the reach of the Canadian government soon found them. The government now required them to become naturalized British citizens and swear an oath of allegiance to the British Crown. This went against their principles, and the debate over it resulted in a three-way split in Dukabor society. Independents, made up of about 10% of the Dukabors, decided to maintain their religion but abandoned the communal ownership of land, hereditary leadership, and communal living. They eventually integrated into Canadian society and largely remained in Saskatchewan. The community Dukabors were the largest group. They continued to be loyal to Verigan, the principles, and the faith. The third group called themselves Sovereign People, but were called Freedomites and the Sons of Freedom by the press, and they took a more radical approach. They embraced the writing of Aragon to such a zealous degree that he actually banned them from the community out of concern they would become militant. Because along with the core Dukabor principles of communal living and working the land, they were also ready to protest for their rights and had harsh attitudes towards external regulation. The press often lumped them in with the larger group and many saw the Sons of Freedom and Dukabors as one of the same. One aspect of this group, though, that stood out was their nude protests. By the 1920s, two decades after the Sons of Freedom formed, they were making news across the country for their protests. They opposed a materialistic life and they did so by marching down streets naked, sometimes burning their own money and possessions. For them, human skin was God's creation, and seen as more perfect than clothes, which were made by human hands. The Dukabor majority criticized the protests. John Lote, a member of the Yorkton Dukabor, said, Only the demented Dukabors undertake these garment-discarding Adam and Eve pilgrimages. None of the sane Dukabors would think of behaving that way. Regardless, for the 1920s, the protests were scandalous, but the Sons of Freedom were not going to stop at public nudity. Seeing Verrigan and the rest of the Dukabors as too moderate, the Sons of Freedom took things up a notch. The group fought against the modern world through violence. They would often burn down schools at night, including ones built by the Dukabors on their land. At one point, they even burned Verrigan's house to the ground. Between 1921 and 1922 alone, they burned down 11 schools. Some even burned down their own houses while burning their clothes in large bonfires. The rest of the Dukabors felt that the Sons of Freedom violated the core Dukabor principle of pacifism and nonviolence, and they did not deserve to be called Dukabors. And while I have included the story of the Sons of Freedom in this episode as they are part of Dukabor history in Canada, I want to stress that they did not represent the wider group. Unfortunately, the Sons of Freedom were about to take things to a new level, though, and turn many Canadians against the Dukabors as a result. On October 29, 1924, as Verrigan was traveling on the Kettle Valley Railway between Castlegar and Grand Forks, an explosion suddenly ripped through his train car. The explosion killed Verrigan, his secretary, Marie, and John McKee, a member of the provincial legislature. 
The Montreal Gazette wrote, Peter Vergen had many enemies among the fanatics who wanted him to discard modern appliances in some quarters. It is argued that a time bomb was used to get rid of him. The Dukabors believed that the bomb had been planted by the Canadian government, while the Canadian government believed that the Dukabors had planted the bomb. The loss of their leader was devastating. Over 1,000 Dukabors, all dressed in black, waited at the brilliant British Columbia train station for the arrival of Peter Verrigan's body. To this date, though, the explosion remains unsolved, and no one has taken responsibility for the bombing. Various theories were put forward, including that he was killed by Soviet agents, Saskatchewan farmers, and even the Ku Klux Klan. It is generally believed, though, that the Sons of Freedom were responsible for the bombing. The attack sparked decades of mistrust between the Canadian government and the Dukabor population, and meanwhile, the Sons of Freedom continued their attacks on the modern world. Over the course of 50 years from the 1920s to the 1970s, the Sons of Freedom committed 1,112 acts of violence and arson, causing $20 million in damages. They even bombed a power transmission tower in the East Kootenay District of British Columbia, resulting in the loss of 1,200 jobs. The attacks continued through the 1940s and into the 1950s. The British Columbia government and Canadian governments wanted to find a way to deal with the Sons of Freedom and force them to integrate into Canadian society. Once again, the Dukabors found themselves lumped in with the Sons of Freedom, and their rights were slowly stripped away. This happened once before in 1917 under the Wartime Elections Act. During that time, the Dukabors lost the ability to vote in federal elections because they refused to take part in the First World War due to their pacifist beliefs. After the war, the Dukabors were able to vote again, but when the Sons of Freedom began making headlines, they lost their right to vote once again. In 1934, the government cited their refusal to swear allegiance to the Crown and their pacifist beliefs as the reason that they would not regain the vote for another 21 years. They also lost their land through foreclosures. Even worse, a prison camp was established on Vancouver Island near Victoria, where 600 Dukabors deemed to be activists were taken. Then came the Great Depression, which had a severe impact on the Dukabors. Many were becoming disenchanted as financial institutions and the government put serious strain on their communal way of life. Once again, hoping to live quietly, over 200 Dukabors attempted to set up a communal property 60 kilometers north of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island in the early 1930s. They purchased 348 acres of land, but soon found local residents unwelcoming. Rumors of wife-swapping at the colony began to spread, and religious leaders in Nanaimo demanded that the government do something about it. The Attorney General's department wrote, We have not heard of any wife-swapping among the island Dukabors. If there is such a practice, it would give grounds for divorce. That is all. Dr. J.B. Monroe, the Deputy Minister of Agriculture for British Columbia, lived nearby, where he raised bees. He stated, I know nothing of my new neighbours, haven't heard of any lawlessness, and haven't missed any bees. Over time, those living closest to the Dukabor colony found them to be wonderful neighbours and had little to complain about. Unfortunately, the Sons of Freedom continued to cause problems elsewhere and claims of nude protesting spread through the island. And although the RCMP saw no evidence of nude protests, colony residents felt persecuted and they began to move away. And within six years, they were gone. In 1939, Dukabor land in the Kootenay region fell into foreclosure and passed to the British Columbia government. In 1952, British Columbia Premier W.A.C. Bennett began a tough stance on what he called the Dukabor problem, despite the fact that the vast majority of Dukabors wanted nothing to do with the Sons of Freedom. Over 400 homes at this point in the Kootenay region were burned down by the Sons of Freedom, so Operation Snatch began. 
From 1953 to 1959, 200 children were taken from their homes by the RCMP and put into an internment center in New Denver, British Columbia. At the camp, children were only allowed to see their parents once every two weeks and only through a chain-link fence. Sometimes visits were denied if the children misbehaved. There were also reports of sexual and physical abuse in the camp. One girl was whipped in the face because she refused to accept pencils and rulers from her teacher. Those scars stayed with her for the rest of her life. In the 1990s, 100 of the children, now called the New Denver Survivors, launched a class action lawsuit against the government because of the physical, psychological, and sexual abuse suffered at the school. They asked the government of British Columbia to issue an apology and compensation, but none of their lawsuits were successful. Eventually, a report was released in 1999 calling for an unconditional, clear, and public apology to the New Denver victims. Five years later, the government issued a statement of regret rather than apology. And to date, no apology has been given to the New Denver survivors. Meanwhile, in the 1960s, when, under the leadership of John Berrigan, the great-nephew of Peter Berrigan, the Duke of Boris bought land in the Kootenai region, which had been foreclosed back in the 1930s. John led the Duke of Boris for decades until he passed away in 2008. But well before that, his contributions led to him receiving the Order of Canada in 1976. In his obituary, John Berrigan was called a beacon of peace who helped the Duke of Boris enter the modern era through his leadership. And despite the loss of rights, property, and unfair association with the Sons of Freedom, the Dukabors persevered, and can now still be found throughout Canada. In fact, between 30,000 and 65,000 Canadians are descendants of the Dukabors today, and about 3,000 list Dukabor as their religion. Most of the still-practicing Dukabors live in Castlegar and Grand Forks, British Columbia, and some live in Calgary, Alberta. But for those who fled the American draft during the Vietnam War in the 1960s and 1970s, they found welcoming homes in the Kootenai region of British Columbia, where Dukabor families understood their opposition to the war and provided them with housing, friendship, and anything else they needed. Many American men found lifelong friends in their communities, and many chose to stay. The Dukabors of the latter part of the 20th century rooted themselves in their communities. They formed choirs, peace groups, and organizations that ensured Dukabors' values and practices were shared with future generations. They had plaques erected to honor their history, published books about their beliefs, and helped repair the damage the Sons of Freedom did. Many Dukabor artists, historians, and writers created works that celebrated their heritage, while also helping them come to terms with the modern world and Dukabor descendants in Canada eventually traveled to Russia to meet Dukabors, who remained behind during the 19th century. The two groups met for the first time in over a century. They may have come to Canada on government promises that were not entirely fulfilled, but they remained and persevered, and are now part of the cultural mosaic we call Canada. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Dukabor.org, Bitter Winter, The Globe and Mail, Wikipedia, BBC, On the Spot, CBC, Our Backs Warmed by the Sun, Free Press, Prairie Farmer, Vancouver Province, Ottawa Citizen, Saskatoon Sun, and The Edmonton Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. 
If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.